Hi, I'm Rebecca Moffitt, president of Vanguard Charitable and your host of our podcast, The Value in Giving. Over the past 25 years, we've learned a great deal about what drives charitable giving, and we are proud of how our donor advised funds impact communities far and wide. That brings us to our two guests today, Shelter House and the San Francisco Marin Food Bank, both of whom received some of our first grants in our founding year and still receive grants today. First, I'd like to welcome Danny Colon, Deputy Executive Director of Shelter House. Shelter House is a community-based nonprofit organization that provides crisis intervention, safe housing, and supportive services to neighbors experiencing homelessness and victims of domestic violence in Northern Virginia. They're searchable in our Nonprofit Aid Visualizer Nonprofit Identifier Tool, also called NAVI for Hunger and Homelessness. Danny, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dive in and why don't you tell us a little bit about how Shelter House was founded and its mission today? Sure. So Shelter House was founded in 1981 and we really started um, from volunteers. So actually um, Shelter House started as volunteers who were giving out things to folks in, in the Fairfax County area experiencing unsheltered homelessness. So they really started by giving out warm clothing and blankets from the trunks of their cars. That went on for a couple of years. And then in 1983, um, very tragically, a gentleman passed away in, on Christmas Day in the Bailey's Crossroads area of Fairfax County. And that really um, provoked a community to do a lot more. And Shelter House, as it was then, really advocated to the local county government that they needed to devote more public resources to um, supporting the homeless and ending homelessness. That resulted in Shelter House being awarded the contract to operate Patrick Henry Family Shelter in 1985. Uh, that was our charter program, and we still operate that program today. So overall, our agency's uh, mission is to prevent and end homelessness and domestic violence. That's a huge mission. That's for sure. It is. Tell me <laughs> about what are some of the programs that you facilitate that help you in achieving that mission? Sure. So we operate a, what I like to think of as a full spectrum of um, homeless services. And so that begins with prevention and diversion. So if someone is at risk of being evicted or um, at risk of losing their housing, then we provide services that are really going to try and prevent them from becoming homeless, prevent them from needing emergency shelter, and help them to either stay where they are. So maybe we are um, working with their landlord to pay rental arrears and get them stabilized or help them to safely safely and quickly relocate to housing that they can continue to afford so they never need emergency shelter. Beyond that, we're not always able to do that. Sometimes we're not able to stabilize them quick enough. And so we do operate emergency shelter programs. We currently operate five emergency shelters, uh, two emergency family homeless shelters in Fairfax County, two domestic violence shelters in uh, Fairfax County. So those are specifically for victims of domestic and sexual violence, stalking and human trafficking. And then we also operate um, the only 24-hour emergency shelter in Loudoun County, and that program serves families with children and single adults without children. So we have uh, prevention and diversion, shelter, and then beyond that, we have kind of what happens after shelter, so permanent housing. So we help folks who are experiencing homelessness to find housing. Uh, we utilize a best practice called rapid rehousing, which is easy to remember by find, pay, stay. We help people to find housing. 
uh, that they can afford. We help to pay for it until they can afford it. And we provide case management services to help them stabilize. And then kind of on the long, long end of the spectrum for folks who have really persistent barriers to housing instability, we have two different programs. One is permanent supportive housing. So that is uh, long-term permanent housing for families or singles that they can stay in and pay 30% of their income towards rent. So we subsidize it and we provide case management services to help them address some of the things that are causing that housing instability. And then we also operate uh, 10 units of affordable housing where we operate as a landlord. And so we're leasing those units uh, in an area that has an extremely high cost of living. We are leasing those units to folks who have experienced homelessness in the past, and we're providing it at a well below market rate value. That's an incredible set of programs and focus areas, truly focusing on the full spectrum of need. That is really incredible, Danny. So thank you for sharing that about Shelter House. Tell us a little bit about the organization today and how you're able to support all of that need. So we have grown to become quite a large organization. I've been here um, nine and a half years. I've been with Shelter House and I, I can only like begin to talk about how much change I've seen. One simple example is that when I started, I started as the director of our domestic violence shelter. Back then, we only had one domestic violence shelter. We now have two in two different parts of the county. And we also had 34 beds, and now we have 83 across our domestic violence programs. And so we have continuously grown in order to meet the the growing community need or the ever-present community need and to fill gaps as we see them. So um, currently, um, I mentioned we operate a whole host of different programs, um, and that has really been us responding to the needs that we see. In February of 2022, we expanded into Loudoun County. Uh, So that was a new region to us. Prior to that, we had only operated in Fairfax County, but we really saw a need for additional services and the use of best practices in Loudoun. And we assumed operation of the only shelter there, but also um, a drop-in center for unsheltered individuals to access laundry, um, a meal and uh, phone or computer and housing support. And it's also the only winter seasonal shelter, or we call it hypothermia shelter. So that's one recent growth. But even before that, we were a a frontline responder during the COVID pandemic. Um, So that has had the COVID pandemic obviously had a huge impact on homelessness um, and housing instability. And so we opened up in April of 2020, we opened up a 210 bed shelter utilizing three uh, separate hotels. And what we really did in that project is took all the folks who were experiencing unsheltered homelessness who were at high risk uh, due to age or medical condition and provided them shelter using hotels. That was um, supposed to be a short three month project. You know, COVID was going to be this really short term thing and it operated for over two years. Yeah, it was only supposed to be two weeks, right? Two weeks. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Uh, unbelievable. You know, Danny, one of the um, statistics that you had shared with me earlier on that I just found so striking is that. of the community that you serve are children. Can you, um, is there anything about that statistic that would be helpful to our, to our listeners? Yeah, I I think to be honest, it's something that didn't impact me as much before I became a parent and really started to think about all that that means and um, the impact that homelessness has on families and really kind of thinking about what it, how hard I think it is to parent a three-year-old in my own home in a two-adult two household, um, that for folks who are experiencing homelessness or housing instability, how hard that is 
to be dealing with, with homelessness, to be dealing with everything that leads to homelessness, you know, the income challenges. Um, but then also doing that in a shelter and thinking about for children, the experience of the bus picking them up, the, you know, the school bus picking them up outside of a shelter and the, um, the feelings that they have around knowing that they're experiencing homelessness. And so I think that's when it really started to um, make me realize just how real it is, just how hard it is for families and really thinking about everyone we serve as parents who are really trying to do the best thing for their kids. In um, an area, you know, Fairfax and Loudoun County, they're some of the wealthiest um, counties in our nation and the highest cost of living insane housing markets and um, minimum wage is still between like 11 and $12. And so I think just realizing the number of children that homelessness impacts is hugely important. Um, and also really thinking about kind of what that looks like on the day to day for kids and for parents. Absolutely. Well, thank you for helping all of us you know, even just understand a little bit more about the impacts fully that homelessness has on um, various communities. Let's talk a little bit about donors who want to give to organizations like Shelter House. You know, I um, have so much gratitude for our donors who've recommended grants to Shelter House over the years. You know, what advice do you have for these donors, um, existing or maybe new, who are looking to support organizations like Shelter House? I think one of the things that I would really love donors to most hear um, is just the importance of receiving unrestricted funds. Being able to serve clients and have flexible funding to do so is the only way that we will ever achieve our mission. Um, you know, we receive our organization in particular, we receive a lot of government funding. We um, apply for government contracts, so through federal, state, and local dollars. And there's already a lot of restrictions on that funding. And so we're already kind of limited in what we're able to do. When we receive unrestricted funds, it helps so much for us to be flexible in meeting clients' very unique, complex, and individualized needs um, and fill those gaps that we can't meet with the funding we receive through grants and contracts. So just a couple examples. Um, we actually most employ flexible funding in our domestic violence homelessness prevention program, which is a mouthful, but basically... Um, very similar to what we're trying to do in the homeless sphere, but we're trying to do this for victims of domestic violence, where if someone is wanting to flee a domestic violence situation and would otherwise have to go into an emergency shelter, we're trying to prevent them before it gets to that point and trying to help them locate safe and stable housing independent of the person who's harming them um, without ever having to become homeless or without and without the violence escalating. Flexible funding is extremely important um, in that those cases in particular, because every situation is different. And we see that in homeless services as well. But one example that I just loved, our team used flexible dollars to help a victim who um, had gone to court and had obtained a protective order against the person who was harming her, which was her husband. Um, but the protective order just said that he shouldn't harm her anymore. He can't harm her anymore, uh, which, which was not what she was looking for in the protective order, because that only really takes you so far. He shouldn't be harming her in the first place, right? And so what it, part of why that happened is that it was very, he said, she said, there wasn't concrete evidence to support either claim. So our prevention team actually used flexible funding to purchase a necklace for the client that she could wear that um, would take video and audio recording in addition to having a panic button. It was very discreet. Her husband didn't know she was wearing it, but as they're sharing the home, uh, he was verbally abusing her pretty regularly. 
She was able to use that necklace to record the abuse. She was then able to take that to court. We helped her with legal fees because her legal fees had become quite a lot after a while. So more flexible funding needed. Um, And she was able to get everything she wanted on a two-year protective order. She gained possession of the home, custody of the children. And so it was such a unique and awesome solution that, again, like our government grants are just not going to to meet that need. You know, similarly, um, on our homeless services side, we may serve someone who's experiencing homelessness and has no support network near us, but they have a family member in California who is willing to take them or We've even had folks who have support internationally. If they can go back to their home country, that's their, that's what they would like to do, but they don't have the money for a plane ticket. So if we can receive flexible funding, we can use that to fix that, that solution or fix that problem and have a way more cost-effective solution, but also what the family actually wants. So we may be able to purchase a plane ticket to California or a bus ticket to New York, where we know that they're going to have the support that they need. And it is far less expensive than trying to provide rental assistance for X amount of time for that household to become stable. So that's where that flexible funding really, really comes in, not only um, to be cost effective in our solutions, but also to really make sure that we're supporting people experiencing homelessness in the way that they need. And I think um, one of the things that we see is that donors often really want to know that Um, unrestricted funds are going to clients. They're going to direct services. There's a worry that it will be used for staffing. And to that, my thought is always like, we can't do this work without staff. Um, And that, you know, in order to do this good work, and when you're working with folks who are so vulnerable or who are going through through these challenges, you need staff members who are well-trained, who have very specific skill sets, and you need to be able to, to recruit and pay them. And so we, you know, we always are looking to be good stewards of funds and we literally cannot do the work if we only have direct service funds for for clients. And so um, being able to pay our staff are so important and our our contracts, our government grants, all that does not cover what's needed. We supplement almost every program really with funds that that are needed partially to support staff. I think the other piece is that, you know, it's a little bit of an easier sell. Like, yes, we need case managers or we need folks who can be in the shelter. But even thinking about staff beyond your direct service staff, everyone is critical to our mission. Um, No one no one is not busy in this organization. And so um, even positions like our grant manager, we won't get our grants if we don't have someone to write them, to report on them, to make sure that we're compliant. And so really recognizing that it's it's not just direct service dollars that are needed for an organization to thrive and meet its mission. And it's not just even salary support for direct service staff. It is the infrastructure that's needed to support staff and to make good decisions. And that's the only way we can get the work done. I love how you really help to illuminate the power that unrestricted giving can have both on being able to provide a much more customized and high impact support for an individual, right? In a way that some of the uh, more structured uh, grants just wouldn't be able to have that flexibility as well as to support the infrastructure of an organization like yours. Um, You are not able to accomplish all that you're accomplishing unless you have a really strong foundation um, that is supported by funds that are coming in. So thank you for really helping um, illuminate that and helping our um, listeners really connect in with how that unrestricted giving is used. You know, how, um, and, and, you know, I will also take a step back and say, 
you know, our, um, our donors are really leaning into unrestricted giving, which is an incredible thing to see. And we see year over year, the percentage of our unrestricted gifts um, coming out of Vanguard Charitable are increasing. More than half of our grants are unrestricted, which is really exciting to see. So the, the message of the power of those types of gifts are absolutely getting through, but it's important to continue to share these examples so that they can better connect. For those donors who are um, really considering leaning into un unrestricted giving, but are maybe a little bit more hesitant to do so, you know, how can donors really build trust with an organization so that they can feel good about giving in a way that is flexible and in a way that's unrestricted? There are so many ways, um, I think, to really build trust with an organization, really get to know the organization and to see how they use the funds that are donated to them or the funds that they receive. And so, uh, and I think it, there's like a whole spectrum of how involved you can get. Um, I think at a minimum, our financials are public on our website. And so you can review our audit, you can review our 990, and you can receive a lot, you can see a lot of information there about, about our financials and about how we spend. And you can really see that we are a lean organization. We're transparent about what we spend on and every dollar counts toward our mission. Um, there are other ways I think that you could get more involved, more hands-on. So we love volunteers. Volunteers are a huge part of our work. Um, and we really, really value the support that they bring. And so if you want to get to know the organization better, come visit, <laughs> um, come volunteer. Uh, we do one-time volunteer opportunities where you can kind of you know, come do some landscaping, mow the lawn, organize a donation room, or you could come every Tuesday and help man the front desk at one of our shelters. So it really, you know, we kind of have a, a lot of different opportunities to be that are very flexible to, um, to incorporate what you might need or to give what you might need from a volunteer experience. Uh, we also have events. And so you can attend one of our fundraising events. Uh, we most recently had our annual um, Changing Lives benefit. This year it was a luncheon. At that event, we have two client speakers who actually speak to um, the support that they received from our, from our organization, where they are now. And sometimes you even kind of, from those experiences, can really hear about how unrestricted funds are helpful or, or what concrete um, assistance Shelter House gave. And so that's another way to kind of hear testimonials about um, what the agency is doing. I think um, some other things that... that folks can do um, uh, that are kind of easy lifts or reading our annual report that is also on our website. And I'm sure it's the same for a lot of nonprofits. So you can see kind of the, the work that we're doing and, and again, see the financials, but see testimonials, get a really comprehensive view of the things that we've accomplished and the number of people we've served. And then I would also say that there are things you could be creative and ask for. For example, we um, do client surveys in all of our programs we collect feedback from clients. We Some of these things are ratings about our services. If I had a donor ask me about that, I'd be happy to give them the results of whatever program or, or across the agency to really show the good work that we're doing. So there's a lot of different opportunities to, to build trust and to get a better idea of how the organization supports the community. Absolutely. And from what you just described, donors can really get to know the organization, both from the financial lens, but also from the cultural lens, which is just so important. They can absolutely immerse into all of the incredible work that you're doing. Well, Danny, thank you so much for sharing about Shelter House, the incredible work that you do, the impact that you are having, and 
how donors could be thinking about the power of unrestricted giving when they're giving to an organization that may be similar to Shelter House or maybe a very different type of organization, but the power that that flexible funding model can have. So thank you very much. For more information about Shelter House, visit shelterhouse.org. Next, I'd like to welcome Chris Padula, Chief Philanthropy and Engagement Officer of the San Francisco Marin Food Bank. The San Francisco Marin Food Bank, whose mission is to end hunger in San Francisco and Marin, distributes 1 million meals every week to 53,000 households. They're also searchable in our free, publicly available tool, Navi for Hunger and Homelessness. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm really excited for this conversation, and I think our listeners are just going to get so much out of it. So let's dive in and let's talk a little bit about your organization. Your organization was established 37 years ago, which is amazing. You tell us a little bit more about your organization and its journey to date. Absolutely. The San Francisco Marin Food Bank um, did start 37 years ago, as you said, and Today, we are the largest provider of charitable food in San Francisco and Marin. And um, while you mentioned 53,000 households were serving per week, um, I think that actually the latest numbers have inched up to 55,000 households per week. As you said, that um, equals about a million meals a week. And, you know, in San Francisco and Marin, we see the need. One in five families are struggling with food insecurity. And we particularly saw that during the pandemic where, you know, the need doubled in terms of what we saw. And so over the years, um, the San Francisco Marine Food Bank has been able to step up and um, serve as much as that need as possible. Um, and we continue to not only provide food, but also identify some of the root causes of hunger and um, work with community partners to address some of those. Chris, that's incredible. And um, the numbers that you provide in terms of the need that exists is um, something that all of us should really take pause in. Um, and yet so grateful that an organization like yours exists to be able to serve that great need. And in order to serve such a great need like that, I mean, your organization needs an incredible amount of resources, right? You need money, um, you need food, you need people in order to support the mission of your organization. You know, Tell us a little bit about that. What are the resources that you need in order to support your mission? How has that really shifted over the years? I'm glad that you mentioned that, Rebecca, because I think folks still, some folks may still have kind of the, um, I guess I would say the old model of food banking where we rely solely on um, individuals donating canned goods, um, but actually, that is probably less than 1% of the food that we distribute. Um, you know, the majority of the food that we distribute, we either purchase or we are able to source at very, um, you know, in bulk. Um, in particular, we are really proud in, in San Francisco Marin that over 60% of what we distribute is fresh fruit and um, vegetables. We launched a partner a partnership over 20 years ago, being here in California, where so much of the farming um, happens. Uh, we were able to create a partnership with farmers in the Central Valley and throughout California, where we're able to source 
um, fruits and vegetables at very low cost. And our ability to basically, if somebody donates a dollar, our ability to really leverage that dollar significantly, um, you know, I think one dollar equals about two meals um, that we're able to provide. So quite a bit of the, the food that we're sourcing is really at bulk. But in addition, um, you, you mentioned other ways. I mean, volunteer, we, we in San Francisco Marin at our food bank, we have one of the largest volunteer programs in the nation. We rely on over 56,000 volunteers every year to make this work, work possible. That's equivalent to about 70 full-time employees. And our volunteers are, are amazing. Um, and the, the need for volunteers doubled from the time from before the pandemic to now um, because the need of, of the services that we provide has also doubled. Um, in addition, yeah, I mean, we rely heavily over 70% of our revenue is from um, private donors. Uh, the majority of those, over 70% of our contributions are from individuals, everywhere from $1 to uh, seven figures. And um, we have over 25,000 donors. And it really, it, it takes donors of all levels from all of our sectors to, to make this work possible. So I am humbled by the outpouring of support for the San Francisco Marin Food Bank. And I think, you know, everywhere I go, whether I'm talking to a friend or somebody, they say, oh, I give to the, the food bank because people can really see the tangible impact that, that we're having on, on, on individuals and families. Um, Chris, I know that many of our donors are also supporters of the San Francisco Marin Food Bank. I think the last time we looked at um, our numbers over the past 25 years, I think through our donors' support, we've sent more than $4 million to um, your organization. And um, that's exciting to see to your organization and other food banks also around the country, especially in time of such great need. You tell us a little bit and what role do donor advised funds play in helping your organization really drive its mission forward? Yeah, it, it was uh, it was interesting to look back at that the twenty five years, uh, Rebecca, and see that that first gift. I think that came in in nineteen ninety eight. Um, I think it was actually a total of three gifts that that equaled about a thousand dollars. Was the f the first set of gifts, and and as you said, now we've received over four million dollars from your donors. And we have a couple of um, six figure donors, um, which we're really grateful for. Like I mentioned, 70% of our um, contributed revenue comes from individuals. The donor advised funds, of course, are not only folks who have the highest net worth, but we see, and as I'm sure you all see, also donors of kind of more moderate uh, means that are really choosing to give through donor advised funds. And we've been really pleased that those folks have been prioritizing the food bank again because they see the tangible need around that. So donor advised funds are are absolutely important to us just as much as all of our donors, whether it's a corporate donor, individual donor, and our um, institutional donors as well. I love that. And I'm so glad that you brought up absolutely donors who have donor advice funds um, come with lots of different backgrounds, lack of lots of different funding sources for sure. And the one thing that um, we have seen here at Vanguard Turtle in the role that we're able to play through the donor advice fund is because 
what is common is that each of those individuals has decided to make this long-term commitment to charity. And so during these times where there's great need, whether it's due to economic challenges, other crises, disasters, our donors are leaning in on top of their granting to other organizations that they have remained committed to over time. And so I know that we'll continue to see that through our donors as well, um, give to organizations like yours. And I would say, you know, Chris, the other trend that we're seeing um, at Vanguard Charitable is that donors are becoming more aware of the power of unrestricted support. And uh, I think we're at the point now where more than half of our grants are going out unrestricted in year over year that's ticking up, you know, by percentage higher um, each year, which is really exciting to see. We hear from nonprofits across every interest area, the power of that unrestricted support. But tell our listeners a little bit about the impact that that type of support has to an organization like yours. Yes, the um, unrestricted dollars for us, especially at the food bank, as, as I mentioned earlier, we're able to leverage our ability to purchase food at high volume. So for us, unrestricted usually means food, um, and that's what we're, we're able to buy. And it is, it is critically important, I mean, in, in the work that we do, again, um, some folks may say, well, what if I just gave you food? And again, we are, we're able to purchase that at much higher volume. So unrestricted dollars for all organizations um, is, is really important. And I think donors putting their trust in the organization to really understand what the needs are for their, their clients, their programs, um, you know, that trust-based philanthropy, which, as you said, folks are more aware and I think part of that awareness is also ideally having open communication or research about um, the charities that they're supporting. And at the San Francisco Marine Food Bank, we um, do quite a bit to educate our donors as much as possible, whether that's, um, you know, through in-person events that now that those are coming back post-pandemic or, of course, through all of our communication to donors and through our um, staff reaching out to individuals to, to really explain the impact of our work. But also the, the the trends that we're seeing, and you know, at um, in food banking and the, the the needs around food insecurity, it isn't just about distributing food, and we can't distribute enough food to solve the issues of of hunger. And we are starting to address in with our community partners really the underlying sources of hunger, um, things like poverty and and racism and economic insecurity so that we can really, really end hunger, not just by providing more and more food. So unrestricted dollars allows us to um, invest in food, to invest in our community partners. We have over 350 community partners that we rely on to help us distribute food, to um, educate their clients about issues around uh, like SNAP and CalFresh, which are supplemental financing programs for people in need. And so really unrestricted dollars um, allows us to, to fill the need where it's most needed. I think that's such an important point to bring up. You know, often donors can't know, right, all of the different ways that you see funding needs to be deployed in order to solve immediate need and also 
move the dial right on some of the root cause um, issues that underlie the immediate need. And I do think it's important for donors to realize that when they give to an organization in an unrestricted manner, it gives you the flexibility to be able to deploy those funds in whatever way you see best, because you are the ones who are closest to the issue at hand. Yeah. Well, I think that the unrestricted also, um, you know, one thing I wanted to mention, Rebecca, is also um, sustainability. You mentioned that you have many donors that for for years, and we've we've seen that at the food bank, um, donors who've supported us over many years. And, you know, during the pandemic, we saw, like many crises, we saw a huge increase in um, contributions and our revenue, I will just say we were we were fundraising about $17 million before the pandemic. At the height of the pandemic in fiscal year 21, we um, received $49 million of support, which is really outstanding. Keep in mind that the number of folks that we were serving before the pandemic was around 32,000 households. It went to over 60,000 households during the pandemic. As I said earlier, we're now at about 55,000 households. I mean, that outpouring of support is wonderful. I will say, however, in the last two years, that has dropped probably 25 to 30%. Um, we're still grateful for those donors that stayed with us. But I think the perceptions of, of need, you know, to your, to your point about folks um, being educated, I think we all saw during the pandemic, I, I, everywhere on the news, the long lines for food. Well, those aren't maybe being covered the same way by, by the media, but the lines continue and our need continues. Um, and some of those donations have not sustained. So there still is high need out there, even if folks may not see it front and center. But I just wanted to mention that because I think it's definitely tied not only to unrestricted dollars, but sustainable dollars, as well as continuing to be educated about um, need in, in our communities. Chris, I love that you um, brought to life, right, the need that still exists, because you're exactly right. I remember um, watching TV and certainly on the news, but the number of programming that was occurring on a national basis as well, right, to raise funds for uh, many of the different causes that were brought to life during the height of the pandemic. Well, they still exist today and we still need to be paying attention do you have any additional advice for donors who are looking to give to organizations like the San Francisco Marin Food Bank, whether that be how they think about funding or just how they should be getting to know organizations like yours to bring them into their giving portfolio? Absolutely. The, um, you know, the, there are, first of all, there are food banks in every community around the country. So if, if folks are listening to this, while we would love your support, I know that we work in partnership with food banks in counties across the country, and there's a network of, of food banks. And, you know, I think for, for donors, um, you know, there are opportunities like we have to either volunteer if you want to get familiar with, with the organization a little bit, um, visit the website. Um, I think folks, I, I have loved in the years that I've done this work, if if randomly a donor contacts me or uh, saying, hey, I was doing some research and I came across your organization. I think that is really admirable. I mean, we certainly do our work to identify donors as much as possible and to leverage networks that we have to introduce folks. But I think um, to your point, depending on, on, you know, folks have different interests. And I think 
understanding what it what is your passion, but also what is the need. Um, food banks are 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 filling the gap of the safety net that government support has is dwindling um, for food. We saw an increase during the pandemic, but it's going down. So I think educating yourself about what's happening in your own community and where there's impact that's happening. And I think all nonprofits really, I've worked in a few different sectors over the last 25 years and all nonprofits are really striving for impact. And also most are, many are struggling with the day-to-day operations because that's just the nature of nonprofits. So, you know, as donors educate themselves, um, you know, really getting in touch with what what is important to to them, whether that's tangible things like food or housing, or if that's advocacy, or if that's education, um, you know, I really believe in fo- in following your passion. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for spending time today. Thank you for educating our donors on all the incredible work that the San Francisco Marin Food Bank does. Um, I have learned a great deal from you and I'm just really grateful for our time. So thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. And thanks to all of your supporters who supported the food bank over the years. Of course. Thank you to all of our guests for joining us today. And for more information about the San Francisco Marin Food Bank, visit sfmfoodbank.org. Be sure to subscribe to the Value in Giving podcast. Next time, we'll talk to Habitat for Humanity, Philadelphia, about trust-based philanthropy and unrestricted giving. Thank you.